Well, good morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you are here with us. We are continuing our series in the book of John. And this morning, uh, like Brett and Connor have already told us and led us through, we're, we're dealing with the resurrection of Jesus. It's going to be an awesome morning together. Uh, it also reminds me that Easter is right around the corner. So Easter's coming up. And on Easter, we're having baptisms. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you've yet to take this step in your uh, life with him and this step of obedience, this is an amazing opportunity opportunity for you to get a chance to do that. Uh, we do ask that you go through a one-time class just so that a pastor can meet with you and kind of explain to you what baptism is and what baptism is. So you do have to sign up for that. You do have to register for that. And you can do that on our Redemption Gilbert app or at the info desk at the close of the service. But baptisms on Easter, it's amazing. So this is, uh, this is one of those Sundays where you should just be really excited to be here. Uh, not that you shouldn't be every Sunday, but uh, if you're bummed because you don't have a cabin to go to for spring break or nobody invited you up north, that's okay, because uh, you get to be here uh, and we get to look at the resurrection of Jesus. This, this word of uh, God made flesh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we're now at the moment where he uh, is raised from the dead. Uh, it's interesting, a couple, uh, like a week ago or so, uh, the cover of Time magazine really struck me, uh, and this was taken from uh, a speech from uh, uh, the Ukrainian president, President Zelensky. Uh, and in case you don't speak Ukrainian, uh, this is what it says. Uh, it, it says, life defeats death. Light defeats darkness. Life defeats death. Light defeats darkness. And I, I don't know about his faith, but really the point is that it's amazing how this idea, this truth, this reality uh, is still bringing hope and still reverberating through the world what starts here in John chapter 20. Uh, there's a seminary that Redemption Church has started called the Missional Training Center. And when you start, one of the very first assignments that they give you is to answer the question, what is the gospel? What, what, what is the gospel? And when uh, I had to do this assignment, a friend of mine who had graduated from MTC gave me a hint. He said, hey, when you answer that, make sure that you include the resurrection. Because the resurrection is central to the Christian faith. Because without the resurrection, the gospel is just news. The resurrection is good news, that death is finished. Jesus has conquered what we never could, which is Satan's sin and death. Jesus is victorious over that in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. I want to give you kind of the framework that we're going to use as we look at this account in the scripture. And this might be something uh, that you feel like you've heard over and over again. It might be something that some of you are hearing for the very first time, but I want to give you kind of the framework to, that we're going to use as we uh, just look at the resurrection this morning. And you've heard us say some of this stuff before. So Jesus is God. That's what John in this gospel account is trying to get through to us uh, in every chapter, in every part of his account, that Jesus is God. And the scripture says in 1 John 4 that God is love. So Jesus is God. God is love. And, and Paul writes the Colossian church in, 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 verse one, in chapter 1, Jesus is the center of all things. So here's how I want you to think about this. Jesus is the manifestation or the being made known and the personification of true love. 
So Jesus is God, God is love. Jesus is love, which means he gets to define what real love is because Jesus gets to define himself. And so when we use words like grace and mercy, we're talking about the outworking of love, how love shows up in the world. So don't think about it conceptually. A lot of times there are these words that kind of get thrown around church. Grace and mercy can be some of those words. And we'll think about them as concepts. But I want us this morning to think about not just conceptually, but personally. So grace personally. And that's the kind of the framework that we're going to use this morning, this unmerited, which means unearned favor of God, the love of God made known is grace. One of my favorite definitions that I like that I use for grace is the super abundance of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So not a concept this morning, the personal manifestation of love towards us, the grace of God. So I'm spending some time on that. I'm laboring on that because here's what I really want because I think this is what John really wants for us and it's what God really wants for us. I want us this morning to see Jesus, to see Jesus for who he is. I want us to see Jesus. I want us to hear him call our names this morning and ultimately I want us to believe the unbelievable in the midst of our hurt, of our pain, our confusion, our wondering, our wandering, our loss, in the midst of war and high gas prices, I want us to believe the unbelievable this morning. But only God can make that happen. Something supernatural has to happen in this time together, uh, and that depends fully upon God. So let's pray and just ask God to help us with that this morning. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for this moment, this time that we get to gather together like this freely around your word. God, to open up the scriptures and to hear from you. And God, um, we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And God, for that, we need your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you do what only you can do? Would you move with just freedom and power God, we need to have a spiritual sight, and God, we need uh, to be able to hear from you, God, to, to, speak, uh, to speak to us exactly what we need, exactly what you have for us. So, um, God, I know you're here because you're everywhere, but would you give us just a real awareness of your presence and your power in our lives so that, Jesus, we would not just come to information this morning, but God, to transformation by the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you do that work? Jesus, we love you. That's in your name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 20, John chapter 20, if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, John's kind of in the New Testament, so like the second half uh, of your Bible, and it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we're in John chapter 20. Um, if you have your Bible with you. John chapter 20, and we'll just read verse one. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So the first thing that we're gonna see about the resurrection is that when we come to God, we see that the grace of God has already done the work. The first thing that we see this morning is that the grace of God has already done 
the work. So Mary here is going to the tomb on the first day of the week. If you remember last week, if you're here, Pastor Jeremy kind of took us through that last section. But what's happened is that Jesus has been crucified. He was on the cross from about 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. At 3 p.m. he died. The sun is starting to set, so they have to take his body down. Um, but there really wasn't a lot of time to bury Jesus in the proper way. So there was a whole kind of process that it would have had to happen, um, but, but they can't do any work uh, after the, the sunset. The sun is coming down. And so the body of, the, of Jesus is taken off the cross, put into the brand new, never used tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They wrap, they prepare the body of Jesus, but not really the full preparation that would go into the burial. They just didn't have time for that. So all night long, Mary Magdalene has been thinking, I want to bury Jesus in the right way. So when it's the first day of the new week, we're allowed to go out and do work. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go and do it the right way. It's kind of like... Um, Ladies, if you've ever asked like your husband to do the laundry, like it's going to get done, but there's going to be a pink sock in there, at least in my house. That's how it is. Like my wife always knows she's like, you can do the laundry, but I'm going to have to refold all the towels and the fitted sheet is impossible. So she's going to have to redo that too. So Mary goes, she's ready to serve Jesus, ready to honor him and, and ready to do the work. But look what happens. She arrives and the stone's already been moved. She doesn't really understand what's going on here. We're gonna see a little bit later on this text. She's perplexed, she's distraught. She doesn't really understand what's happened. Um, but, the, but the point is this, when we arrive at the tomb to do the work and to serve the Lord, what we find when we get there is that God's already there and he finished long before we ever show up. That's the story of God. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of grace. The work has been done and God has already finished everything we need and everything necessary for life. You see, Mary goes in to do the work, but she didn't know that the Spirit of God has already raised up the body of Jesus that has always triumphed over the grave and brought Jesus back to life. She went there to prepare the body, but the Spirit had already restored the body. So she gets there early, and she doesn't get it in verse 1. But the thing for us to hold on to is that when we go to do uh, the thing that God has called us to do in our homes or in our neighborhoods or in our schools or our places of work or whatever it is that God takes you, wherever God has you show up, we show up in confidence because we know wherever it is that God takes me, he's already done the greatest work in whatever situation he puts us in. And when we show up to serve God, God says, thank you. I love that you showed up. I love that you're here and I am gonna use you, but you need to know I've already done the work. And yes, it, we do give our lives to serve God and to love God and to love others, but not because the work depends on us, but because the greatest work has already been done for the kingdom by the king himself. So, so the, the, this is great news for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus. What this means is that you get to uh, show off or put on display the resurrected king everywhere you go and in every endeavor and every relationship, everything you do with your life, all parts of your life, with all of your life, for your whole life, you get to show off the resurrected king. That's good news, in case you weren't familiar, but, but that's good news, right? There you go. Um, 
And, it, and you can do that, and God's not asking you to defeat Satan. God's not asking you to defeat sin and death. He's not asking you to accomplish anything. He's just asking you to show up and realize that when you got there, the work's already been done. Let me, let me put this a little bit more just kind of in your kitchen, just distill this a little bit down more. Because something for you to think about and something for you to recognize is not God is not already, he, he's not only already working in the places that you're gonna go, but, but consider that God's already started working in you. And I know some of you in the room, you would not say that you're a Christian, you'd not say that you're a follower of Jesus, or you're like, well, I don't know, man, I don't really think that God's working in me. And the reason that I think I can say that, um, even though I don't know everything in your story, I know one part of your story is that you are here today, now, listening to me talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't think that's an accident, I don't think that's a coincidence, that today of all days, what's being spoken over you is that God's already done the work to put you back together with him. He's already done everything for you to experience what you want the most. God's already done everything for you to experience abundant life, for you to experience peace, for you to experience hope, for you to experience forgiveness and mercy and joy and love in him. God's already done the work. And the big punchline for the Christian, for the Jesus follower, um, is that the stone is rolled away. You don't have to do the work. You just have to enter in and open your heart to what's already been done on your behalf. The stone is rolled away. And the other encouragement is, too, if you have friends and family and neighbors and you've been trying to get just the gospel message out to them and just it's not connecting, that's a non-anxious thing in your life because God's saying, keep praying, keep showing up, keep loving, but don't stress it because the work is done. The tomb is empty. Grace, the work of grace is already done. Be available, be available to what God gives you, but know that the work has already been done. So the first thing that we see about grace is that the work's already done. God's already done the work. The second thing that we're gonna see about the grace of God is that the grace of God is how we see and believe. The grace of God is how we see and believe. Look at verse 2 of chapter 20. So she, this is Mary, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and they said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. I, the, John is great. I just love how he just puts this stuff in there, just punking Peter the whole time. Uh, said, reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in, then the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along later behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, gotcha again, Peter, also went inside. He saw, verse eight, he saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. 
So one of the reasons I love the Bible so much is because it's real and it has real people doing real things in it. So you just have to engage with the scripture in that way. If you read it as if it's kind of made up, uh, then, uh, then it, it loses its power. It loses its uh, ability to connect to what's happening in your life. But if you read this as real, and here's, here's why I'm saying that. Like, I can just picture Peter who hears what Mary has to say, uh, and now he's got a shot to kind of redeem himself a little bit because Peter just went through this denial moment, if you're not familiar with the story. And so Peter wants to kind of earn it back. And so he shoots out of the place where they are and he takes off. Turns out John's a little bit faster, which he tells us about. Uh, but Peter is, is there and kind of setting himself apart. Now, it's interesting why that is in there because you might just think, well, John just has it really out for, for Peter. That's why he writes little details like that. Also, I kind of wonder if the other like disciples got a little sick of like John always calling himself the one that Jesus loves. They're like, hey man, we're a little sick of you like constantly like identifying yourself like that. Um, Anyway, commentators have different thoughts about like why John writes this way. One uh, thought is that John's really trying to show how different all of Jesus' followers are, which is something that's very unique uh, about the, the followers of Jesus, these disciples, because they all come from very dynamic backgrounds. They're all very different, but yet Jesus is able to bring them all together. Uh, another thought is that John wrote his account after the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is primarily based on testimonies from Peter. So John's kind of doing some like inspired PR work here. Either way, Bible's full of real people, and I love that this stuff is in here. Um, a couple things to notice in this section here, and this, this, these details are really important when you're reading this. The grave clothes are all folded. And there was a thought um, that people, grave robbers, were going to steal the body of Jesus, that there would be some kind of hoax in this moment, and they would attribute her resurrection, but that Jesus would actually, his body would be stolen. So it's significant that the grave clothes are folded because if someone had stolen the body of Jesus, they wouldn't have gone through the trouble of trying to unwrap the body, right? So nobody wants to carry around a naked corpse, even a grave robber. And even if they did do that, they wouldn't have like folded all the clothes neatly in the place where Jesus was was laid. The main verse really though, to zero in on this section here, and that we're gonna connect, and it's gonna connect to the next section too is verse eight, because it says, John, who reached the tomb first, saw and believed. So John is telling us right here, he's like, this is, this is how I did the math. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. The linen wrappings are all folded up. Jesus really did rise from the dead. John is saying, I believe that Jesus really has been raised from the dead, that he really is Lord, that death really is defeated, that everything Jesus has said really is true, that this is the single most important and, and astonishing fact and event in world history. And, and what's so beautiful in that one little verse is that the birth of the Christian faith in its deepest sense is told as simply as possible. He saw and believed. And that is what John wants for you and me more than anything else. See and believe. Because when you do, you will find deep, meaning, lasting life 
in Jesus. That's good news. The scripture tells us over and over again, and especially in the New Testament, that this sight is a gift from God. And 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul is saying it is God who provides the illumination. It's God who provides the sight for you be, to be able to see Jesus. When Jesus shows up and he kind of lays out his mission statement in Luke chapter four, he He's quoting from the Old Testament, but he said, he says this, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is why I'm here. Uh, he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed. In John chapter three, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When Paul is talking to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he's talking about what Jesus is up to, and he says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. And then finally, Paul's prayer to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1 is, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling, that you would see and believe. And it's all an act of the grace of God that allows us to see and believe, to see Jesus for who he really is, which is a challenge for many of us because many of us have a very skewed or distorted picture of who Jesus is. We see it in the next little section here. Uh, look at verse 11 with me. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? She said, they, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, thinking he was the gardener, verse 15. What's happening here in this moment, uh, she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And this actually happens a lot in different resurrection accounts. So if you remember uh, the story on the road to Emmaus, these guys are walking, Jesus kind of runs up on them. Hey guys, what are we talking about? And they're like, well, where have you been? How do you not know what's happening? And they're talking with Jesus, but they don't recognize him. So why don't people recognize Jesus in these moments? And, and part of it is that he, he has a resurrected body. So his, there is something familiar about his body, but there's also something new. I mean, later on in, in uh, this book, we're gonna see Jesus just walks through walls. So that's different. That's a different type of body, right? But it's also true that there are some things that are kind of the same because he's gonna talk to Thomas uh, and he's gonna say, hey, stick your fingers into the places of my wounds, my hands hands and, and my side. So when people are kind of brought to attention, they recognize Jesus, but on the face, they don't seem to get him. And one of the reasons could be that sometimes when we make a decision in our mind that something is the way it is, even if we say it differently, we won't notice it as different. Here's what I mean. It's a, there's a psychological term for this. It's called change blindness. 
And once you've experienced something or been told something a number of times, within your brain, you reinterpret what you see. Because you've already made a category for it in your mind. You literally can't, God bless you, you really can't make your eyes see it differently. It's like it's kind of stuck there. So all these people, they saw Jesus die horribly. So it makes sense when they see Jesus, their brain kind of pushes them to say, well, that's obviously not him. Here's how this connects to us. Many of you have been told things about God. Or there's been some kind of picture or image or even character about God that you've been told or that even that you've fabricated. And when you think about God or when you look to God, you can't even see him another way. You can't get your head or your mind around what God could be like because you've just kind of filled your mind with images or ideas about who God is. And what John is doing here, and not just in this account, but really through the whole gospel, is showing us who God is in the person of Jesus. And what's so fascinating here, in this section in particular, is that John's giving us an image of Jesus as a gardener. Now, John is kind of a literary genius, because this image uh, of of gardener and garden, the kind of the connective tissue for that is really thick and weaves itself through the entire scriptures. So if you remember the story of the Bible, sin enters the world in a garden. And a garden that man was meant to cultivate. So Genesis chapter two talks about this. Or be a gardener in. That was what man was given, that role in the garden. And there in that garden, there is a woman who is deceived. And here we have John showing us in another garden, the true gardener, the one who brings life and cultivates life in his people, is here with another woman to show her that the exile of death is defeated for the sons and daughters of God. So John is doing this amazing work where he's kind of like weaving the scripture together into this moment. When Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, he'll also he'll often use this agrarian language. He used like this like gardening and like farming language. Uh, he paints the kingdom of God as a beautiful, flourishing garden or 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 a vineyard. And in fact, just a couple days before Jesus goes to the cross, he's talking to his guys and he says, you know, guys, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. They don't really get it. They don't know exactly what he's talking about. But Jesus here is literally the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits of how God is working in the broken wasteland and chaos of humanity. He's the gardener that's working in people's lives to cultivate new life so that your life would bear fruit. 
So John here, in just this brief little section, he's giving us a way of seeing Jesus that elevates him above all the other distorted pictures of him that we might have been raised with or heard of or even kind of made up on our own. And the beauty of the scriptures is that they, along with the power of the Holy Spirit, or by the power of the Holy Spirit, fix the false pictures of God that we might have and allow us to see God for who he rightly is and to see that in him there is no new life that in him, even death itself does not have power over you. And it is the grace of God that wakes you up, that wakes up even a desire in you to welcome God into your life and experience how God takes places of death and sadness and fear and redeems them and restores them and resurrects them. And new life grows in their place for our joy in him, for his fame and glory. One of the reasons that I love being together, coming together at a church, is to see all of your beautiful faces, but each and every one of your beautiful faces represents, this church is a, is a garden. And it's a garden of, how, of stories of how God in his grace and in his mercy has taken things like addiction, and divorces, and sickness, and even death, brokenness of every kind, and out of that mess, and we're all a mess. My role here is lead mess. (laughs) And out of all of that, God, the true gardener, has brought forth new life out of his great love. That's why it's so good for us to be together and to know that in this garden, God's just growing new things. By the way, just to stick with this motif for a second here, um, good gardeners also prune. And I don't know if you've ever had something in your life pruned so that new life would spring up in its place. I I have and, and have learned and I am learning that pruning comes from a good gardener whose heart is for me and whose purpose and plan is best. And I'm, I'm going to just kind of end this section with this because this is a hard thing for us to get our heads and our hearts around, that God's pruning in our life is a good thing. The first thing is that you have to recognize it's all God's. It's all God's. All of it belongs to him. The scripture says, what do you have that God did not give you? All of it is his anyway. And if he's good, which he is, and what he does is always good, which it is, then when he prunes, it's good. So stop acting like it's yours and embrace the the pruning. The second thing to really know is that God is a God of growth and life and flourishing, and multiplying. And he tends to his good creation all the time, which is me and you, always, every day, every moment. God is not an absent-minded gardener. He's always attentive to the work that he's doing. So that section there, we see that the grace of God is what allows us to see Jesus and believe that he is Lord. Lastly, we're just about done here. Lastly, The grace of God 
calls you by name. So the grace of God has moved the stone. The grace of God has done the work. The grace of God is what lets you see and believe. Finally, the grace of God calls you by name. Look at verse 15. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus says, do not hold on to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So Mary's there, she's interrogating this gardener. Where's Jesus? Where did you take him? And the, and the other gospels even give us this line of, you know, Mary, why are you looking for, for the living among the dead, and it's not really adding up for her until he speaks her name. Mary, it's me. And she hears his voice and she spins around because she knows that's Jesus. And she calls out to him, Rabbani, which I always want to pronounce as Raboni. It's like the Italian in me, like it's a pasta dish. Raboni, hey, we're having some Raboni. Teacher, she knows who he is and she immediately throws her arms around him, which is just the natural, normal thing to do. And Jesus says, hey, don't, don't cling to me right now. I haven't ascended to the Father. And Jesus, he's not being mean. He's not saying, hey, you can't touch me. In fact, later on, he's gonna invite Thomas to actually touch him. He's just saying, listen, Mary, you can't just stay here. You can't just cling to me because there's so much more that needs to be done. So Mary does what's totally normal, and Jesus is not chastising her. He's saying, look, it's good that you want to be as close as possible to me, but Jesus is saying the way that you are most useful to others is if you go to other people so that I can be accessible to them as well. Charles Spurgeon says, sitting at the feet of Jesus must lead to following in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus is saying, yes, this, is, this embrace is good. This is good, Mary, but there's, there's, a, there's a mission there's something to do. There's others to tell about me. Here's the grace that we see at the tomb. God is not off somewhere distant. What God does is he pursues people and shows up at the places of their deepest disappointment. God shows up at the places of your greatest fear and discouragement and questions. He knows she is at the tomb. He knows she is distraught, so he meets her there. And, if, and it, can I just offer you one last thing as we close? That if you're in that place where Mary's at, Jesus is here to meet with you today. And you might not know who Jesus is, and that's okay, because he knows who you are. That's the beautiful thing about the grace of God. You don't have to know everything about who God is right in this second. You just have to be encouraged that he knows you, he loves you, and he's the one who calls you by name. And when he does, it's specific, it's undeniable, and unearned grace. It's a beautiful thought that the risen Lord came to Mary and called her by name, and that's exactly what God does. 
when, when he comes to you, it's not just this kind of like massive, general, generic, hey, y'all, how you doing? No, it is specific by name. And it's not us finding him in the garden in the dark. It's him finding us in the garden in the dark and calling our name. And I want to believe that he's doing that right now. That Jesus is speaking to some of you deeply and personally right now. And I don't know everybody's story. I don't know everything that's happening in the room. But my prayer, our prayer, is that you would respond to him by faith and that you would move from death to life today. That today you would peer into an empty tomb, see and believe, put your faith and trust in Jesus. Last thing. I know I keep saying that. That's what pastors do when they're trying to buy time. This really is the last thing, though. At the very beginning of verse 11, the scripture says, Mary stood. It's very significant because that word stood is in the pluperfect tense, which means it's very, very strong language that John is using here. It's like, I'm staying right here. This is the kind of discipleship that Jesus has been calling for in the entire book of John. What John is saying is that Jesus is not a hotel that you visit on the weekend. Jesus is home. Jesus is not just a hotel that you just kind of check in and check out of. John is saying, no, Jesus is where you make your home. Stay right here with me. Make your home with me. Stand firm with me. Even in the midst of tears and even in the midst of heartache and even in the midst of disappointment, abide with me and keep abiding. Mary is there and she has nothing but confusion. It looks like her world is falling apart. And what does she do? She stands there, stood, not going anywhere. It's one of the great themes of the New Testament, to stand, to push all the chips into the middle, to say, it's all on Jesus. Mary's saying, yes, I saw him die. Yes, I've got a million questions, but what he said, he said, and I am believing him. I am standing here. I'm weeping, yes, but I'm not moving. Paul would write to the Philippian church. He, he, he was saying, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and, and see you again or only hear about you, I know that you are standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, this is where, where Paul is saying, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Uh, and, then, and then he says, we have victory, so therefore stand Firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I know as we're done here that, that so many of you, you've got stuff going on in life and you are seriously wondering, how much longer can I stand? That might be why you're even here this morning because you're like, I just, I can't stand anymore. And I don't know the category or categories, whether it's financial or physical or relational or emotional or spiritual, but you're at the place where Mary's at and your world is spinning and you just don't know how long I can stand here. And I know, I know full well what those seasons are like. When you feel like, God, I know I shouldn't quit, but I just really feel like tapping out. I've had a very weird week, to be honest, and God answered some very specific prayers for me in a very obvious way, because that's how God has to talk to me, because I'm quite dull and don't get it unless it's like very blatant and kind of, and God told me, thanks for continuing to show up. 
Thanks for staying put. In fact, someone said to me, uh, and I, they don't even know if it was prophetic, but I think it is. God must really think that you can take a punch. And it doesn't mean I've done it perfectly, and it doesn't mean that I've had questions and tears and sleepless nights. I just resolve that I'm putting down roots at the empty tomb of Jesus. And I'm going to stand there. Which, by the way, is grace. Because it's not like, okay, I'm just going to grit my teeth and will myself to stay here in this place. No, it's grace that even allows you to stand and to stay put. And it's so important, church, because where you put your hope is where you are going to try to stand in this life. If, if your money, your career, your kids, your fame, your success, your politics, your health, whatever it is, if you put your hope there, that is where you will try to stand in this life. And when things go bad, and things always go bad, that's why the New Testament has to write so much about standing put. If things never went bad, they wouldn't need all those verses. But things go bad. You can't stand on any of those things. They're too shaky. The empty tomb is the place where we put our hope. That is where we stand. And my encouragement to you is that Jesus wants to meet you there. Jesus meets you in the place where you are standing in your sorrow. That's where Jesus shows up and he speaks your name and embraces you because he sees you because he knows you, because he loves you, and he names you. Brother, sister, son, daughter of God, the tomb is empty. This morning, death is defeated. The grace of God is for you because of the love of God over you, which is an amazing segue into communion. So I'm gonna welcome the band up now. We're gonna take the elements together like we do Every week, every week here, uh, there's two elements that should be close to your chair, on your chair, at least on a chair near you. There's the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. And for the Christian, we celebrate communion because it's a moment where we remember our confession, that our faith, our confidence, our hope, and our trust is only in the person of Jesus and his finished, complete final and satisfying work on the cross. There's nothing to add or detract to that. It is only by the body and the blood of Jesus. It's also a moment for the Christian where we do confess the places in our lives where we've put our hope in something or someone else other than Jesus. And once again, we return to the body and the blood of Jesus. And so if you are a Christian if you're a follower of Jesus and that is your confession, then this table, this moment is for you to eat and to drink, to remember and to celebrate. If you are here with us and you, by your own confession, your own admission, you'd say, well, that doesn't really describe me. Uh, I'm not, I would not call myself a Christian. Then in this moment, uh, you are free to not participate in this, meaning you don't have to go through the motions just because everybody else might be doing it, you don't have to feel like, oh, I guess this is the church thing to do. Like, I'm here, this is what I should do. It doesn't make any sense for you to take the elements. But I just want you to hear the invitation that Jesus makes because it's real and it's available today. Jesus says, um, are you weary? Are you tired? Are you worn out? 
because in me and with me, you will find rest. Jesus says things like, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Have you eaten your fill of whatever the world offers you? Have you drank deeply of what the world presents to you and just found yourself more starving and more thirsty? Jesus says, come and feast on me. Come and drink deeply of me because I'm the bread of life and I'm living waters that will always satisfy you. And so that invitation is available for you today. You come by repentance and faith and putting your trust fully in Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, we eat, we drink, we celebrate, and we sing because the tomb is empty and our God has conquered the grave. So let's do that now.